Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus commands his disciples to keep watch, the biblical writer is drawing upon a broader system of terminology in Scripture that stresses vigilance at all hours, even at midnight, when most people are sleeping through the study of Scripture. When I remember you upon my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me, but those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. The imagery in Psalm 63, and by extension in Mark chapter 14, plays on the idea of keeping watch as a defense against danger. But the manner of defense is not that of a soldier standing guard at midnight, but of a studious disciple meditating upon the Lord's instruction at all times so as to remain steadfast in the moment of truth. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to, wait for it, episode 200 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Good afternoon, Dr. Benton. Good afternoon, Father. So we are still in Mark chapter 14, and we have just seen the complicity of the disciples one way or another, or at least their culpability on some level for the betrayal of Christ. Let's put it like this, at a minimum... Their betrayal of Jesus or their faltering loyalty to Jesus is on display in the way that he keeps them off balance at the table fellowship. Everyone is potentially guilty. That's the beauty of how he announced it at the table. And the one who protested the most, Peter, was the one who got squashed the most. And it wasn't because Jesus singled out Peter. Jesus didn't single out anybody. Peter singled himself out as being the most righteous. There's no way it could be me, so it must be somebody else. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. Jesus met with his disciples in a room, in a house. This was out of character for Jesus, because in the beginning of Mark, he kept trying to avoid rooms and avoid houses and avoid towns. Now what's significant is that he moves out as soon as the meal is over, to an open area, 
to a garden and said to his disciples, sit outside. So he's going back to his so-called native area, which is outside the city, outside the house. Being outside in a garden is what's important. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. Now, whenever I hear the three names, Peter, James, and John, I think of Galatians because these are the pillars in Jerusalem. And as I wrote in my book, to be called a pillar in Paul's letter is not a compliment because a pillar is a piece of the edifice of the structure of the temple made by human hands. So these three characters are interested in preserving the temple, preserving the institution, preserving the synagogue, preserving the purity of the identity of their people. That's what they represent as pillars. So now Jesus, who is Jerusalem in motion, so to speak, he's not a city. He's the person who represents God's polity, as it were. He now is being threatened. So the ones who hold up the temple are now being asked to bear witness to the one who truly embodies the temple not made by human hands. And the thing that's so difficult is Peter is the one who was just a moment ago accused of his future betrayal of Jesus. He is chosen as one of the witnesses precisely of this event. This word ekthavmistha comes from thavmazo, which is also amazed or a wonder. They tried to make it fit in English, but they tried to make it fit in their way based on their interpretation of how Jesus should feel. But the funny thing is, the same term that's translated as distressed here is elsewhere in Mark translated as amazement. Like their amazement at the miracles of Jesus or the crowds being amazed or whatever. So I take real issue with this translation, distressed. The question that's been raised over and over again in Mark is, what should we be amazed about? The passion is where the power of God is truly expressed in the Gospel of Mark. And if you're scriptural, herein lies the true amazement that the king, the anointed one of Psalm 2, would humble himself and allow his subjects and his opponents to kill him. He's amazed and troubled. This makes sense scripturally. And if you hear Mark, which is the way Mark was intended as poetry, as oral poetry, you're going to hear the word amazed and you're going to call to mind every other time you heard it. It's just like a thesis. It hits you like a ton of bricks. The key to understanding amazement in Mark is to understand that there's two ways of looking at the world. You can be impressed with Julius Caesar on his chariot with his army, or you can be impressed with Jesus Christ, who's humbled and humiliated and crucified as a traitor against Caesar. We really try to keep Jesus in this box of how he's supposed to feel. And we can see that maybe Mark is working against that, and this is why it's necessary for us to read very carefully. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Now, when I hear the Lord ask his disciples to keep watch, it calls to mind the Psalter. You have to keep watch and meditate on the precepts of the Lord. The hour is at hand. Jesus is preparing to do the will of his Father. What would a good disciple do at that moment? They would 
meditate on the Lord's precepts. Jesus isn't saying keep watch so that I don't get arrested because he knows he has to be arrested. So if you understand, again, the language of Scripture, you understand the dynamic here. The verb watch strikes me because what are they supposed to see? What they're seeing is their teacher, their master, humbling himself. Do they really understand what Jesus is about? Jesus is not here to take over things. Jesus is one under obedience, and this is all they're going to be able to see. All they're going to see. They're not going to see clouds on fire or a sound coming from the mountains. They're going to see their teacher humbly bowing his knee before his father. If you are asked by the Lord to keep watch and you look with your eyes, you're not going to see what you're supposed to be watching for. If you are asked to keep watch and you receive it in the spirit of the Psalter and of Proverbs, that you keep watch and meditate on the Lord's precepts, you're going to see what's happening to Jesus with your ears. And when you see with your ears, then you will be correctly amazed at the crucifixion. Not amazed in the sense of scandalized because you can't understand why, but amazed with the manifestation of the glory of the Lord's wisdom, which pertains to the love of neighbor and humility and obedience. And it's very important that our listeners understand that this obedience pertains to the text. To be obedient to the will of the Father is to be obedient to Scripture, not to what you imagine the will of the Father is. I don't like it when Christians say, I don't know what God's will is, so I'm going to pray about it. I have no idea what you're talking about. What that means to me psychologically is you're going to sleep on it and decide what you want. But that's not what the will of God is. The will of God is a will and testament, as Paul says in Galatians. He wrote it down. So if you have a problem... It doesn't matter if scripture directly addresses your problem. You have to figure out what you're going to do and you have to own your decision. But you had better know scripture so that when you make your decision, you know where you're stepping. Keep watch. I like what you said, Father. Not against the things that are coming from the outside. But keep watch that your own soul doesn't betray you. Your own thoughts don't betray you. Keep watch so that you do not waver from following behind your master. We must obey the will of God. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. Jesus doesn't want to die and he doesn't want to be abused by the Romans. He doesn't want to be betrayed by his friends. Why? Because he's a person, a normal person. Why would anyone want that to happen? Jesus takes nothing from this, gets nothing from this, and he doesn't want it. There's no sin in not wanting to obey. The sin is in disobedience. The action. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will, which is the point that we're making. Now... I wanted to say something here about Abba Father because this is, again, a classic quote from Paul's letter to the Galatians. 
People say all kinds of crazy things about this. The worst in my mind is this whole thing about familiarity, like God is our Papa. This isn't about familiarity. It's Aramaic, which is a Semitic language. And patir, which is the word that Mark uses that's translated as father, is a Greek term. So we just came from the table fellowship in which the blood was poured out for many. And now Jesus is looking to his father and referring to him both with his Aramaic Semitic name and his Greek name. What does that mean? It means he's the father of everybody, Jews and Romans. Yeah, I would find it difficult to say that this is a term of familiarity, because if that was the case, why would he add then o patir afterwards, a formal title? Why would you have an informal and then a formal if you wanted to convey familiarity? That argument doesn't make sense to me. He's saying plainly that he's the one God. This is Ezekiel. Before Galatians, it was Ezekiel. He's the God of the Romans, not just of the Jews. And then he says, after establishing the total hegemony of his father over all groups, he then says, it's not my will, but your will that counts. Now, if Jesus is saying that, and he's addressing God in the language of both groups, that means the will applies to both groups. We think that Jesus is doing this for God, so that God hears how faithful Jesus is. Really, he's doing this for God? When he just said to his disciples, sit down and pay attention? What is he teaching? Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is teaching. You bow down to the Father. You bow down to God and be very careful and keep watch that you don't accidentally slip up and do what you want to do and thereby neglect what God wants you to do. We are reading scripture. So Jesus prays in scripture. The prayer is instruction. It's instruction to the other characters in the story, but more importantly, it's instruction to those of us who are sitting at the table of this story and eating the crumbs that fall down. We as the readers know that Jesus is overwhelmed and heavy by the situation. The disciples don't. They're only there to learn. Jesus wanted his disciples to see how he acted. Jesus wanted to show his disciples what it meant to submit one's will to God. Are the disciples going to be able to do it? On the surface, one says maybe, maybe not. But in two seconds, we know, no, actually, they just can't do it. So we judge the disciples on whether they learn the lesson and carry it out. Jesus told them to watch. If they would have listened to him, they would have noticed without being told that he was troubled and sad. If they would have kept watch, they would have understood his situation in his hour of need. But they're selfish It's like Jesus is dealing with all of the chores and the disciples are sitting on the couch watching football. In verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Ominous words. The word hour is a technical term. It's the hour, the aura, the moment when the Lord appears in judgment. Mark is all about timing, and we know that this is it. This is the end. I'm asking you to keep watch, and you're falling asleep. You're not meditating on scripture. You're not learning to see with your ears. You're not tuned into what's happening to me, your teacher. You're sleeping during the football game. And now the hour is at hand, And it's all going to happen, and you're going to miss everything, Peter. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh 
is weak. And temptation, birasmos, is the time of trial. It's not temptation a la modern Christian spirituality where you explain to the church school kids that the reason they want to do something wrong is because the devil is tempting them. That has nothing to do with this text whatsoever. No, we saw the problem is that they don't know how to submit their will to God. That's the problem. He said to Peter, Simon. Simon, interestingly, comes from the Hebrew, Shma'on, which means hearing. It's the same in Arabic. Isma, listen. He's saying, oh, hearer, are you asleep? And this is ironic because he was the one who was protesting that to the ends of the earth he was going to be with Jesus. And he's like, yeah, the first hour you weren't able to do it. One hour you couldn't do it. And all I asked you to do was sit. And you couldn't even sit. You fell asleep because this is the problem. The one who is unable to submit to the will of the Father is the one who cannot hear, who refuses to listen to the will, which is expressed in Scripture. And this is where Simon fell short. And it's also significant because all three of them were asleep. But the hearer, Simon, is the one that Jesus lambasted. Terminology, terminology, terminology. Watch our temptation as in birasmos, the trial. This is technical terminology. The moment of the trial, the day of the trial, the day of judgment is upon you, Peter. Are you listening? Are you seeing Simon with your ears? I want to keep stressing this point. When Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, he's saying, pray that the judgment would be delayed as long as possible so that you could still correct your behaviors. Peter's up against the end of that window and he's snoozing. Again, he went away and prayed saying the same words. He gave them a second chance. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. So at least Jesus is making progress with them because Peter before was full of words talking about how faithful he was going to be. Now at least they're being quiet because they know they're sunk. And now we have the classic third time. You're out of time if it's the third time. And we actually realized the three here because now Jesus is going to be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. This is the apocalyptic moment, as it were. This is the apocalypse, the uncovering of what he's been teaching. And the uncovering does not happen in the resurrection. The uncovering happens in the crucifixion. And if you don't understand that, go back and listen to the whole podcast beginning with Mark chapter 1. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Idhu, behold. It's all, again, this terminology of the hour. It's at hand. The time of trial is here. Now we know at this time of trial that Peter's going to fail. Sleep rest. The lesson is over. The test is now upon us. I've taught you everything I can teach you. Now it's just unfolding the way it's meant to unfold. I want to go back, Richard, and talk about the folly of capitalization and lowercase in English. Because in the New Testament, 
When the translator thinks that the word nevma refers to the spirit of God, they put a capital S. And when they think it refers to the spirit of men, they put a lowercase s. But I strongly disagree with that approach because even understanding how the word spirit is used is up for interpretation. As long as I can remember, people have said when someone is conflicted over doing something they don't want to do, they said, ah, oh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what they mean is that there's a duality, a psychological duality. Your body is tired, but your mind knows what it should do. But that's not how I read this text. The whole point of this text is about the will of the text. It's about the will of the Father of Jesus, which we have to submit to. And the Spirit submits to that will because the Father is the Arhi. The Father is the one who's in charge. It's His will, which means that the Spirit of God, which carried Jesus in the beginning of Mark, is willing to carry the pillars with Jesus to Golgotha. The Spirit is willing to carry out the will. It is ready and willing to do so. But the flesh, in this case Peter, James, and John, are not willing. You see how damaging Hellenistic dualism is. People don't get it. So Peter and James and John aren't conflicted. They're just lazy. Everyone has a spirit. The question is, which spirit do you have? You can tell which spirit someone has by their actions. So if your actions are incorrect, you know that you do not have the spirit of God. You have either a demon or some other spirit. It is not the spirit of God. Don't tell me that your spirit is willing because you have another spirit that's animating you. You have imagined a spirit that is willing, but you don't actually have a spirit that's willing. But notice, in English, it says the spirit, lowercase s. You're not going to ask the question, which spirit are we talking about? The oldest manuscripts of Greek don't even have lowercase letters. They don't exist when this was originally written. So whether it's capital or lowercase was something that was imposed on it centuries later, so I don't pay attention to that myself. When you're reading, even if you don't know Greek and you don't know Hebrew, have a dictionary with you. Get an app for your device you can quickly search to see how words are used. You can test and check. And if you get in that habit, you have a better chance of getting closer to what the author is doing as opposed to what the translator is imposing. I think it's important here to kind of bring together what we've been saying about the will of God throughout the course of this podcast, not just with respect to the Gospel of Mark. Whatever happens to you in life, whether you think it's good or it's evil, if you are scriptural, it is the will of God. You have to begin there. When you are faced with a choice, you then have to be honest with yourself that you are accountable for your choice in a situation. All situations are presented by God, but you always are presented with choices. Your duty is to hear scripture to the best of your ability and submit to it and then make choices. But don't presume that your choice is the will of God, which is how Christians talk with their spirituality. I prayed about it. Don't fall in that trap because you don't want to be held accountable for making not only a bad decision, but then pinning it on God. Notice how people say the Holy Spirit revealed to me. Better to say, Lord have mercy. God willing, Lord have mercy, God forgive me. Learn to speak the way your ancestor did. They make more sense than you do. 
for heaven's sake, don't tell me the Holy Spirit told me. Don't tell me who you think is full of the Holy Spirit. Don't tell me the Spirit led you because it may have been the spirit of the devil. You don't know. If you want to talk to me about God, tell me what you read in the Bible and we can discuss what it means. We can even debate how it's applied. But once we move outside of those boundaries, we're dealing in the realm of human ego, which is very dangerous. So please don't deceive yourself or others with the language of spirituality. Don't do it. Remember that the true language of spirituality is the words of the text inscribed on Sinai with the finger of God. Christ is in our midst. He is and ever shall be. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.